confession there from Jake that he can't swim, which is actually true, I'm told. Jake is not a swimmer, and so the guy who can't swim introducing the story of Jonah for us. Well, uh, we are continuing our summer series, Jerks of the Bible today, and we're particularly looking at the jerk uh, of Jonah. And I'm not sure where that word jerk originated from. Um, The dictionary simply defines it as an unlikable person. Uh, But growing up, I I heard that word a lot, and I mostly heard it from my mother. And it wasn't directed at me. It wasn't directed at my siblings. It wasn't, thank goodness, directed at my father. My mom would use that word specifically towards drivers. So if she was driving around town and someone cut her off, jerk, she'd yell. Or maybe if someone whipped around her real quickly, she'd say that with conviction. Or probably the worst offense of all, if she was in the Kohl's parking lot ready to go spend her Kohl's cash and she was zeroing in on a, on a spot in the parking lot and someone whipped in and got that spot. Before her, she would utter that simple word, jerk. Now, whether it's an unlikable person, a bad driver, or someone who does evil, or maybe someone who just messes up. I think this summer, as we've looked at these various jerks of Scripture, that we also might see ourselves a bit in their story, and I'm confident that Jonah is no different. So, I encourage you to open up to the book of Jonah. It is in the Old Testament. Uh, If you're using a Bible in the, the back of the seat in front of you, that's on page 925. That might help you find that a little bit. Um, By the way, if if you ever need one of those Bibles or you know someone that needs one of those Bibles, I encourage you to take that Bible home, put it to good use. We'd love for you to do that. Uh, But Jonah, a minor prophet, is sometimes uh, indicated, uh, termed as the most reluctant prophet in Scripture. It's just four chapters long, simply 58 verses. Uh, But we're going to find out why Scripture uh, indicates that he might have been one of the most reluctant prophets today. But let me give you one caution. With all of these jerks, we kind of are maybe easily kind of write off their story or we read their story with judgment. But I want to encourage you to refrain uh, from maybe holding that judgment because not all of Jonah's story is bad. In fact, Jesus mentions Jonah in Matthew and talks about the ministry he was able to accomplish and even aligns a little bit of Jonah's story with himself. You might read that later on this week. But today we're going to read not only some of the good, but also some of the bad of Jonah's story. So let's jump off uh, by reading chapter 1, verse 2. It says this. This is God's command to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So there's God's command. He clearly lays it out to Jonah, this minor prophet. But instead of doing that, we see rather in chapter one, Jonah, Jonah flees. He runs away. He flees. And before we're quick to judging him from running away from God's command, we have to look a little bit about those Ninevites, the people in the city of Nineveh. You see Nineveh, as Jake referenced, is the capital city of Assyria. And these guys, they were brutal. If you've watched um, Walking Dead at all, the gruesome way you see some of what happens in that show could kind of really be related 
to the Ninevites and how they would kill their enemies. In fact, um, many of the, there's a lot of writings on, on, on military officials who would kind of capture and write down how they would kill those that they would find, and they almost continue to do this to one-up each other. As some of the things that have been recorded is that they would dismember a person limb by limb, but they would leave one arm and hand so they could reach out to their loved ones as they bled out. Speaking of loved ones, you might have been challenged to walk through, or I should say ordered to walk through uh, the city streets with a loved one's head that had been decapitated on a pole. Maybe your brother or your mother or your child, just again as a reminder of the power that they wielded over those that they captured, specifically the Israelites. Not only that, it's recorded they would be skinned alive, and they were also known to bury young children alive as a way to kill them. And probably worst of all of the torture that I read was their practice of pulling out and cutting off the tongues and testicles of their live victims. These people were completely brutal in their actions. So I I can understand when God said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh And I I want you to tell them about their corruption. I want you to tell them about their wickedness. I want you to kind of walk in there and just take care of business for me. I mean, we can see that that may not have been something Jonah really wanted to do. Uh, God was asking Jonah to go to his cultural enemies and proclaim judgment. And either way, either way you look at it, this is a lose-lose situation. Either he goes and, and maybe he's successful, but all of the Israelites were, were thinking, what, what are you doing? These people are, are awful. They're heinous. Or he would go and just simply be killed or tortured or brutally murdered. Uh, either way, it's a lose-lose situation. So we see that Jonah responds a little differently. He fled instead. And scripture tells us not only that he fled, but he really, really fled. In fact, uh, the next section of scripture here, beginning in verse 3, says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And there's one more slide there, I think. Maybe not. Oh, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah, in chapter 1, we see that Jonah is fleeing, but he's not just avoiding going to Nineveh. He is going the complete other direction. In fact, um, Nineveh was known to be about 500 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and he goes south instead to Joppa to then hop a boat to go 2,000 miles to the west. So not only is he going the opposite direction, he's going in a different mode of transportation, and he goes so far west, it is essentially the the most western point known to man at that point. Imagine like that's the end of the map. And so as he's called to Nineveh, he says, no, I'm not going there. I'm going the other way. And I'm, I'm not just going the other way. I'm going as far as I know to go the other way. And he hops in this ship and he goes. It would be contextually for us uh, to say that maybe God has called us to go to Atlanta, about 500 miles away, but instead we, we start to our journey and maybe even hop a train, a different mode of transportation, and go all the way to Salem, Washington, the complete other direction. That, that is fleeing. That is fleeing from God's call. But God is sovereign. 
And we already know that he had other plans for Jonah. So while he's on the boat, a storm begins to brew and comes up and it threatens the sailors. It threatens the vessel. They're, they're, they're fearful it's going to capsize or break apart altogether. And as Jake mentioned, they cast lots and realize that Jonah might be the one who is responsible for this. But the text pretty much records Jonah's indifference. He's not really active in that time. He's sleeping. He's sleeping below deck there. And then in verse 6, the captain went and asked him this. He said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. It doesn't appear that Jonah responds to that just continues to sleep or maybe just doesn't give an answer. And so they continue to pepper him with questions. This next text says they asked him, uh, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They are desperate now in having Jonah intervene in their situation. But Jonah has a, a brief response and it tells them all that they need to know. He simply says this, I am Hebrew and I worship the Lord. It's in that moment that Jonah's in another potential lose-lose situation. Either that boat capsizes or breaks apart and he drowns, or as Jonah figures it, the only other option is for him to be thrown overboard. As to not bring God's wrath upon that boat. You see, Jonah in this moment, he wants to believe in a God that only judges and does not forgive. He is avoiding going to Nineveh because he wants to believe in a God that's only going to judge and condemn Nineveh, not offer grace and compassion. He would rather die in the sea and bring the sailors' deaths to them as well than suggest that maybe they turn around and head back to Joppa so he can continue on God's selected course. His running from God in this moment it's not just disobedience. It's not just that he dis disobeyed God, but he completely disagreed with how God was wanting him to interact with an invites. Now, again, I can, I can, I can empathize. I can, I can understand how he might feel this way. Uh, these people, they, they were wicked and gruesome and they weren't Jews as many times we see uh, the minor prophets are, are speaking and, and continuing to preach to the Israelite nation. This, this was not that. Not only that, he didn't want to preach and have nothing happen. Then he'd be accused of being a false prophet. If he had gone and preached these, uh, to these people groups and there was no action, that would be bad for his reputation. Uh, he feared that the Ninevites might kill him. We already know that that was kind of in their mode of operation. And theologically, he had good reason to believe that they should be destroyed. He had good theological standing from history to say, these people don't deserve to continue to live. And so offering grace to the Ninevites, it was a pretty theologically risky move. And Jonah, Jonah thought he knew better. He thought he had a better plan altogether. So he invited the sailors, given his options, he said, why don't you hurl me into the sea? By the way, that, that word hurl is used four times in chapter one. We're going to see it elsewhere in scripture. I think that's interesting. And so he is thrown into the sea. It's at this moment that I, I think, if we're honest with the text, we have two questions that we have to ask ourselves. And the first is this. Are there areas of our spiritual life where we're not simply being disobedient to God, but we're running the other direction. And we're running because we disagree with God. 
It's not that we're just disobeying and not honoring God or following God, but we, we flat out disagree. And so we have gone the other direction, some sort of action or thing that he has called us to that we know, that we've read in scripture, we've heard from him. We're running in the complete other direction. A second question I think we have to ask is, do we oppose offering grace to certain unbelievers because, man, we, for honest, we, we question if they're worthy of God's mercy and perhaps maybe we're concerned of the social or cultural implications just as Jonah was if we were to invite them into a life of Christ. Perhaps it's someone who's done something to you. Perhaps it's a, 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 a group of people or perhaps it's coworkers or whatever it may be and we, quite frankly, we're, we're not so sure we even want to Speak to them about the love of God because maybe some friends here in this room might think differently about us because of that. There might be social or cultural implications to that risky theological move. James Bruckner says this about that very question. He says, the double-edged theme of God's act of mercy towards enemies and the call for God's people to trust God enough to proclaim this sometimes offensive mercy has its beginning in Jonah. That double-edged mercy is not only for us, but it's for the rest of mankind as well. And sometimes, if we're honest, offering that mercy might feel a little bit upside down. Might seem a little bit contrary to our own personal nature. Well, Jonah 1, in that first chapter, we see that Jonah uh, flees. But then in chapter 2, we see that Jonah prays. He's thrown into the sea. He's swallowed by a huge fish where the text says he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And so I guess I, I'm left to wonder what else would there be for him to do but to pray. I mean, he doesn't have anyone around him. He doesn't have anything with him. He's still alive in the belly of this fish, and so chapter 2 records his prayer. Now, a lot has been written about this fish, and if we think back to our childhood, most of the story of Jonah has to probably surround about this fish, and is it a whale? Is it a fish? Is that even possible? Could scientifically you live in the belly of a fish or even a whale for that amount of time? And there's been a lot of discussion of whether or not that is true or accurate, I don't know the answers to some of those questions. I know this, scripture is full of miracles. And perhaps this is another example uh, of God's miracle to continue to advance his will. And I think if we focus too much about the fish and the practicality of that, we, we run the risk of missing the point altogether. And so I'm going to read a portion of this chapter too. And it's in this poetic language, this poetic prayer. I feel like we, we see and sense a lot of God's character. So just listen as I read from chapter 2, verse 2 through 9, and consider uh, what we learn from God in this section. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths. By the way, it says, you hurled me. The sailors threw him overboard and threw him into the water, but Jonah knew it was God's will. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me, and I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep 
surrounded me. Seaweed has wrapped around my head and to the roots of the mountains, I sank down. What incredible imagery. The roots of the mountains. Jonah is at this point spiritually, physically, emotionally at the depths of his life. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit when my life was ebbing away. That verb ebbing, again, a nautical term. My life was ebbing away. I remembered you, Lord. And again, not just remembered cognitively, but this act of remembrance was something the Israelite nation was continually challenged to do, to remember the Lord and to proclaim his goodness. He says, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. We see Jonah's prayer there. We see a little bit of God's character there. And it looks as if Jonah's finally beginning to turn and his will perhaps beginning to align with what God originally called him to do. And so the fish spit him out back at Joppa where he began this journey. And once again, he hears this call. And so in chapter three, we read that Jonah now is going to preach. He flees, he prayed, and now he's going to preach. Jonah hears that command once again. And this verb to go, uh, it has an indicative command, a notion that he is to go immediately or go now. He's not to waste any time. And Jonah follows suit. He travels to Nineveh, and what we learn is a large city might take up to three days for him to fully cover the city. And chapters 3, verses 4 through 5 tells us this. This is his three-day journey, and it says, On the first day, Jonah started out into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Jonah finally delivers this message, and it's only five Hebrew words. Again, think of all the other prophets that we read about. Many times it's the story of them proclaiming these words to the nation of Israel, to other people groups. But the book of Jonah is more about Jonah, his attitude, his actions, and he preaches these five Hebrew words giving this proclamation. Forty more days in Nineveh will be overturned. And it takes just that, even just that in the first day of his travel, and they've already begun to believe and turn towards God. Even we read that the king believes, and he gives the the power and influence that he has as king to intensify their redemptive actions. First of all, he intensifies the fast by adding the abstinence of liquid as well. And he adds that to animals as well. Fasting indicating a desire for God's mercy. He extends the call to sackcloth, making animals wear the sackcloth as well. And this was a symbol of God's repentance, a desire for repentance. Not only that, he commanded the Ninevites to cry out to Yahweh as the one true God and give up their evil ways. And then he ends this decree by humbly saying this. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from the fierce anger so that we will not perish. In just one day, this nation is beginning to turn towards God. So how did God respond? I I think this next verse is kind of the pinnacle of this story. And we see God's response to the Ninevites in chapter three. It says this, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion 
he did, and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. God had compassion. Twice now in the story, both with the sailors in chapter one, who weren't following God, but then turned to God, and now the Ninevites in chapter three, we see that these people who are far from God, they've offered repentance and they begin to turn towards him. Even Israel's worst enemies, the most unlikely people, they believe, they repent, and they receive God's compassion and forgiveness. So God's call for us today in this story of Jonah is that both the rebellious Jonah and the wicked, wicked Ninevites are worthy of God's grace and mercy. Everyone in this room we fit into one or both of those categories. Some of you might say, yeah, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know how I've acted. You don't know how I've dishonored the name of God. And you're not quite sure you're worthy of his mercy and grace. Truth is, we're not. None of us are. But God offers that to the Ninevites and he offers it to us as well. And some of you uh, may be more aligned with Jonah and you followed God your whole life and you've kind of known what God's asked of you and you've tried to be obedient, you've tried to do the right thing and maybe you're even a little stingy sometimes on who you choose to share that good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with and you might even resist sometimes and you maybe don't even know it, you maybe don't always identify it but you're a little resistant to, to to continue to offer that grace and mercy to those people. Fill in whatever that blank may be. Maybe it's based off how they've treated you. Maybe their lifestyle, their skin color, their ethnicity. And you're a little hesitant. Because you're not, you're not really sure if you agree with God on them deserving that opportunity to know him. So Jonah flees in chapter one, Jonah prays in chapter two, Jonah preaches in chapter three, and we see great success in his ministry. And so then in chapter four, Jonah celebrates what God's done. No, that's not the story at all. You'd think that Jonah could celebrate that after he had some successful ministry, but instead in chapter four, we see this story conclude by Jonah fumes. He is angry. And verse one through three begins to capture that frustration but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Jonah's certainly frustrated. And here we finally see his chief complaint is he doesn't like God's plan for the Ninevites. He doesn't agree with it. He doesn't think that that should happen. And he knew if he had gone to Nineveh, God would be compassionate and merciful. And he disagrees with God's plan. Ironically, we can compare uh, the response to three different characters in this story. First off, in chapter one, we see the sailors say, maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Again, a, a kind of a sense of humility. They're hopeful in their uh, repentance towards God, hoping that maybe God will relent. And then in the, the next uh, example in chapter three, the king says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Again, the king humbly coming to this conversation, hoping that maybe God will hear. And then Jonah, the one who's closest to God, the, the, as God's representative, his prophet to these people says, 
I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. <laughs> you, you almost, you hear the whininess in his annoyed little voice there. And how did God reply to that? Well, God said this in chapter 4. The Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? This wasn't um, a question of whether it was a legally a, a, a ability for him to ask that question or to be angry. It wasn't kind of what standing are you? He's more like, is this a moral question? Like morally, what gives you the right to ask that, to, to be frustrated with that? You might be able to sum that up like, what gives? <laughs> God replies, but God continues to press, and Jonah now in this fit of rage, he, he walks away. Maybe you've been there, you're frustrated, you're having a conflict with someone, and you're like, I can't even respond right now, I'm so mad, I'm going to go away for a while. And Jonah leaves, like God, God engages, God presses in, but Jonah retreats, and he walks away, and he goes uh, to the... Um, to the, the outside of the city, it says, and he goes to kind of look at the city. We don't know exactly what he was doing, but again, he was hoping, I think, for destruction, for God's will and, and, and for God's uh, uh, justice to be rained down upon these people. And so he goes to look at the city, and I, I wonder if he wasn't wondering if God would change his mind, you know, finally come around and destroy those people as they have been wicked. But while he's out there, he builds some shelter, it provides some shade. Jonah seems to be relatively happy. And then God provides, it says, a leafy plant to ease his discomfort. It comes up, provides some shade from the sun so he's a little more comfortable. And finally, Jonah is thrilled. He's, he's happy. But the next day, a worm comes from God, chews through the vine. Jonah loses his shade. And wouldn't you know it, cranky Jonah is mad once again. And so this time he decides he's ready to engage with God. But God asks him this question again in 4.9. 4, says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah responds, it is, he said. And he goes on, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. That's the last we hear of Jonah. That's the last we hear of Jonah's words and thoughts. But God closes this dialogue. He closes this book by inviting Jonah to see the heart of the creator, desperate to be reconciled to the creation that he, the creator, has tended and has grown. He says this, Jonah, you've been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And with that brief interrogative statement, God forces Jonah, and I would argue us as well, to inventory how well do we really align with God's love for those that he's created? How well do we align with God's love for those he's created? Uh, through the course of this study, this book, these four chapters, short chapters, we've talked about a few observations, we've asked a few questions, but I think it's good, again, to reiterate those and summarize those, and maybe I would even encourage you, write these down, contemplate on these this week as you think back to the story of Jonah. A few observations. Number one, God is sovereign, 
God is sovereign. He is in control and he will accomplish his will. And whether it be through a storm, whether it be through a large fish, whether it be through a leafy plant, God's sovereignty will continue to reign. Number two, another observation is this. God's favor is always by grace. It is never deserved. His favor is always by grace and it is never, ever deserved. Some of us here, if you grew up in the church, you think, you know, I, I serve a lot. I'm, I'm here every Sunday. I, I, I give an offering. I'm putting in all this work. And in some sense, maybe deep down, we run the risk of thinking we're, we're earning God's grace. We can't. God's grace is never, ever earned or deserved. It's always through God's mercy and his love for us. And then finally, God's mercy is his to give, not ours. So when we consider inviting people into a relationship with, with God or continuing to, to pray and talk with our one, sometimes we might feel the burden of having to fix problems or help them in their life. And that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to point them to Christ, to pray for them, to continue to show them the scriptures. But it's God's opportunity and the Holy Spirit's work to continue to refine them and make them into a follower because God's mercy is his to give. It's not ours. So two questions that we want to continue to wrestle with this week. First one is this. How does prejudice compromise our Christian testimony? We see it in Jonah's story. He does not want to go to those people. They don't deserve it. I don't agree with it. God, you're wrong to think that they deserve it. And if we're honest, we might sometimes have a bit of that in our lives as well. Whether, again, it's someone who's done something horrible to us or a group of people or a type of people or an action of some sort that causes us to second guess our desire to see them come and know and follow Christ. It's our prejudice that interferes with God's will and the sovereignty of he wanting us to engage with them spiritually. And secondly, how do we begrudge love for others? Maybe you've had someone do something wrong to you or to your family and you've seen them come to Christ later and quite frankly, you, you, you question that. Well, is that really real or are they authentic? How could they have done that in the past and, and sit in church and, and act like they uh, love God? There's no way, but that's, that's Jonah's story. Like, we, we, we don't, that's not our role. We aren't to begrudge God's love for others. I'm going to close with a story about a, a man that served as an elder in my last church. We were in Springfield, Illinois for 15 years. And long before we came, there's a man by the name of Tom Dace who lived there. He was an elder at the church and he'd gone to a men's prayer breakfast. And then following that, had traveled home to his uh, apartment, one of his apartments that he was fixing up. Um, and there was another tenant there that was pretty close by. And as Tom began to, to fire up the circular saw and make some noise, well, another name, man by the name of Frank Sherry, in a, a fit of rage induced by drugs and alcohol, came down the stairway furious with him, grabbed a hammer, and began to beat him unconscious. And uh, Tom eventually did become fully unconscious, was taken to the hospital, and he actually died the next day from his injuries. The police arrested Frank, convicted him of murder, and sentenced him to prison. And several days later, Tom's 74-year-old wife, now a new widow, Florence was her name, Florence Dace, 
she went to the county jail where he was held, and she asked if he could, she could see her husband's killer. I can't imagine them doing that today, but after they searched her for weapons and kind of could see the tone of her voice that she wasn't frustrated or angry, they gave her access to her husband's killer. It was the first visitor he'd had since he'd been in prison. And she stood looking into the cell, and she was holding her husband's Bible, her deceased husband's Bible with her, and she said to Frank, you have done a terrible thing. You have taken away my husband, you have taken away my livelihood and my Christian partner, but I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to love you. As she went on to read Romans 8, 28, and all things God works for the good of those who love him and said, quite honestly, I don't know how any of this could work together for good. The only way I can see good coming out of this is for you to come to Christ and for you to become a minister. So she handed the Bible over. She said, you owe it to me to read this book. And on the inside cover, her husband had written what it meant to be a believer and how to become a Christian And so she gave her most prized possession, her husband's Bible, to Frank, and she left. Several months later, she went to visit Frank, now in a maximum security prison, and sitting with him in the cafeteria, she learned how Frank had become a Christian. Frank proceeded to confess his sins and asked uh, Florence and God both for forgiveness. And she stood and threw her arms around her husband and said, God forgives you, and so do I. And that's when they started meeting regularly. She taught him the scriptures. She began to to continue to, to share with him what God had done in her life and what he wanted to do in his life. And eventually, he began to lead devotions there in the prison and became a great aide to the prison chaplain. After 12 years of prison, Frank was released in 1988. And much mostly because Florence kept writing letters to the parole board, encouraging them to consider releasing him, that now he was no longer a threat to society, but actually could be helpful to society. And after he left prison, he began to travel to churches in Springfield. They're telling his story of forgiveness, not only the forgiveness he received from his Savior, Jesus, but also the forgiveness that she had modeled for him as well. In fact, there's many uh, examples and videos of them of them ministering together. Florence, next to the person who killed her husband. Uh, She continued to travel with him until 1997, and she died, and he continued his ministry, doing prison ministry, all the way to his death in 2004. She had every reason to believe, just like Nineveh was to Jonah, that this person was evil. This person did not deserve the grace that God had offered to her, but instead she embraced that double-edged sword of God's sometimes offensive mercy, and she offered it to him. And church, I'm, I'm confident that we are called to do the same. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the story of Jonah, and we see ourselves in it in so many ways. God, continue to help us change, to become more like you. Allowed us, allow us, Lord, to offer that love and mercy to those that sometimes we are prejudiced against, sometimes we are avoiding, sometimes they're even close to us and we're hesitant. God, you've called us to share that love with all. Maybe we, may we be obedient and avoid fleeing and going in the other direction in the call of our lives. 
We pray all these things in Christ's name.